Today's guest strongly believes that true empowerment is achieved by promoting science literacy and critical thinking to make people more resistant to populist ideologies and alternative facts, otherwise known as fake news or lies. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Dr. Anna Zakrisen is the founder of the science communication platform, Dr. Anna's Imaginarian. She has received degrees from the University of Cambridge, the Max Planck Institute, a PhD from Stockholm University, and worked as a guest researcher at the Leibniz Institute. She is currently working as a scientific researcher with Green Roofs Diagnostics. Dr. Anna, welcome to GreenSense, and thank you for joining us all the way from Berlin. Thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be on the show. Anna, you have a unique background. You're highly educated and trained to speak in very precise scientific terms using technical jargon, but can translate these complex concepts to communicate in terms the layman can understand. We need more people like you. Uh, so <laughs> tell you. us, where were you born and what, what did you study at all those places? Okay, so I was born in Stockholm, uh, up in the sort of mid to north. So I'm um, coming from very cold conditions. I just heard that Chicago also get very like blizzards uh, in the winter. <laughs> so I'm, I'm used to that kind of climate as well. But we don't get the warm summers. Um, and I basically, I was interested in too much. So I couldn't really decide what I wanted to study. So um, I actually have five degrees and a little bit of uh, related topics in biology. Uh, so in Cambridge, I, I did uh, a lot of plant science. And then I went on to work a lot with aquatic systems. And of course, all of these things come together and work really well for green roofs because uh, we have water and plants and the soil come together. So I found my place basically. Well, you, you really are a special uh, person. We really appreciate you being on, on the show. And you're on a, a personal mission to promote science literacy and critical thinking to make people more resistant to alternative facts and populist ideologies, something that we really need much more of, uh, you know, especially in this world. Uh, what drove you to be on this important mission, and especially in these times uh, when trying to understand what's fact or fiction is quite a challenge? Yeah, it is a challenge. And I think that is also why I wanted to, to get into, into these topics because I felt a little bit like the skeptical communities that, uh, that work for this, they, they do amazing work, but sometimes can be a little bit dogmatic uh, because there's often there are a lot of other reasons to why people fall into these traps. And I, I was interested also in understanding the psychology behind this, which also led to me to be very interested in content marketing and how marketing and sales uh, messages basically and communication uh, works. So, um, but I've always been interested in, in trying to, uh, to basically sort the facts from the fiction since I was a little kid. So I think it's just, uh, it's just a, maybe a born with it interest that I've had my whole life. I don't know. I, I don't really know exactly how I came to do it, but um, I love it. Well, that's uh, very important because your passion shows. So tell us about some of the unique ways uh, both you and your husband, who's an opera singer, yeah. accomplish this and, and educate and enlighten people. Yeah, so um, my husband, as you said, he's an opera singer and, and is very used to standing on rather big, uh, large international stages. And we've actually done a science communication opera uh, where, <laughs> where it started out with a scientific lecture, actually talking about the opera from a scientific perspective, uh, because it, it was an opera about uh, the Mad King George uh, that basically lost America to the Americans. And <laughs> so, um, 
So it was about his madness. And I thought it was very important also to have that scientific perspective of his madness, uh, so to speak, uh, before the opera show. So that's one example. But we've done a lot of things like that in the past uh, where we've mixed uh, art, art and science, because I think it's a, it's a very Victorian way of seeing it, it's separating the arts from the sciences. There's really no need for this uh, rather silly separation, I think, in my opinion. I think that science is a, is a magical world, is wonderful, and the arts can be used to communicate it, I think. Well, the more I talk to you, the more I understand that we do need more people like you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> both of those uh, uh, disciplines reside on, on the same side of the brain. So I agree there should not be a division. Um, what are some of the other cool things you're doing to help promote science literacy? Well, I, I, uh, I write a lot of uh, blog articles. I'm basically trying to uh, translate the scientific literature, the scientific studies that come out uh, into a language that can basically be understood by people who have not studied 12 years at university. And also, frankly, sometimes the academic uh, terminology or lingo is ridiculously uh, complex, over, overly complex, I must say. And uh, it is, it's turning to a language that actually needs translation. And uh, I've also been very, very frustrated with this big wall, a boundary for uh, normal people to actually get access to science that has actually been tax funded, which science that they have the right to know about and they have the right to, to, to understand. And the scientists themselves, they have too much to do and they're too overworked to also take on the role as the science communicators because that's not their jobs basically. So this is where I found my niche. Interesting. Well, one of the challenges out there is it's hard to distinguish uh, uh, facts from, from truth out there. A any mm -hmm. tips that you could give our listeners? Well, I, there, are, there are a few things. Uh, firstly, um, check uh, who has been published it. And if it's only if it can only be found on YouTube or somewhere places like that, then maybe it's not a, a good source. So check your sources. That is extremely important. And also, if you find it in a scientific uh, uh, journal and find it, it's a scientific article, make sure you also see what kind of journal this is, because there's a lot of fake and bad journals out there publishing trash science uh, for a lot of for, for money, basically. So make sure you understand what an impact factor is and, and how the journals are rated. Those are two good things to check for. One of the biggest uh, indicators I look at is where did the funding come from? Because sometimes mm -hmm. that funding can sway the outcome of science. What are your thoughts yes. on that? No, absolutely. That's, that's, that's very important. But, uh, but of course, there can be very good studies also provided by, by people with financial interests. So, so, uh, but, but it's important to, to take all of, all of these little building blocks together and look at it. Uh, so is the journal good? Is the, is the researcher uh, a well-known researcher in the field? Do they have the experience for it? And also, where does the funding come from? And all of this together paints a picture of how reliable the information is. Well, thank you very much. And let's get into Green Roofs. Uh, you're mm -hmm. a researcher for Green Roof Diagnostic, a global independent nonprofit organization headquartered in the US. And they promote fact-based science that supports holistic green infrastructure. Wow, you sound perfect for that job. <laughs> So <laughs> some of the things they do is uh, testing protocols specifically adapted to urban infrastructure, developing practical modeling tools to empower architects and engineers, and honesty and objectivity, including acknowledging when green roofs might not be the best solution for a given mm -hmm. project. 
tell us more about the organization and add anything that I may have missed. Yeah, so um, I, I just want to say that I, I found uh, my dream job at <laughs> Diagnostics because I get to do everything that I love the most. I mean, I did my PhD in ecology as well, and now that I get the chance to actually do something that is actually having an effect on the environment, which I felt like actually, to be honest, in the academic world, I did not really have the opportunity. It was I ended up being just admin. And um, so uh, we uh, develop new standards, for example, so that uh, the, the, the products out there can be tested for um, and basically ungreenwashed because there's so much fantastic products, fantastic technology out there in the green roof and green wall industry. But there are also places where there might be some improvements that are necessary. And these improvements might be needed um, but people might not be aware of that there are some uh, performance issues with, with the products because the standards that are currently being used might not actually pick up on them. So uh, this is this is probably the most fun part of, of, uh, of our work currently, I think. Well, there are many types of green roofs. Uh, some grow flowers and plants, uh, mm -hmm. some grow fruits and vegetables, some have beehives for honey production, some are seasonal. Others are year round, uh, some are in commercial buildings, others are in residential. With so many options, how do, you do, how do you begin to design a green roof? Well, I think the first question you gotta ask yourself is why do you want to have the green roof? Do you have a specific uh, problem that you need the green roof to solve? For example, do you need rainwater harvesting for something or maybe for the green roof itself? Do you need it for stormwater management? Do you have a big tank at grade that you would like to avoid and manage all the detention storage on the roof? That would be a completely different type of green roof. If you want, for example, if you need uh, fruit production or, or vegetable production on the roof, there are so many different, different uh, reasons you can have a green roof. So that's basically the starting point. And when you know your starting point, and also, of course, your budget and your load requirements for the building, then you can start looking at, you know, what kind of green roof would be, what kind of setup would be the most suitable for, for me. And uh, that's another fun thing that we have done at Green Roof Diagnostics. We have taken, uh, we produced tons of data uh, and produced these modelers so that you can just with a few clicks check out what kind of, in the pre-planning phase, an approximation of what the best setup would be for, for your roof and your climate and so on. And yeah, so that's another part we do. What are the biggest challenges uh, that someone would face when it comes to designing and building a green roof? Well, um, it really depends on where you are. I mean, in, in Las Vegas, in the desert, you'd have a very different problem than the rainy UK, for example. Um, but uh, of course, for retrofits, it could be load requirements. Uh, that the, the, um, the building basically has to be reinforced in order to, to take the, the load of the roof. This is very rare, in my opinion, being here in Germany, because um, uh, most roofs here can take the extra load required for at least an extensive green roof. But the situation might be different for an intensive uh, green roof, which basically requires a lot more substrate or soil, it's a lot more heavy. So, so it really it really depends. Sometimes there are some legal requirements as well. Um, when it comes to stormwater and detention, there's a lot of like old and outdated ways of thinking about stormwater that is still in the system and, and that I'm hoping that we can change um, in order for new new innovations to actually be able to 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 take over the market and, and so. In my uh, experience here in the U.S., one of the mm -hmm. biggest impediments to uh, 
green ideas uh, being mm -hmm. implemented is the building code. The building code in the US seems to promote mediocrity. It gives you a baseline standard to meet and it's very inflexible when it comes sometimes to green technologies that are new and uh, mm -hmm. cutting edge. Uh, how does how does the building code impact green roofs? Well, um, I think it depends very much from country to country. In, in Austria, for example, they have a requirement that you must build a green roof if you have a roof that looks a certain way. Like you, you cannot get out of it even. So, so that really depends on where you are. Um, but I think that um, by talking to people from different countries, I think we can learn that what seems to be impossible in one country might not be so impossible after all. And building codes can change. You just need to put enough pressure in the right places uh, for a long enough time, uh, and and they, it is possible to change. You know, we have we have seen those changes in many countries here in Europe. We have many countries here in Europe that are also lagging very, very, very far behind. But uh, things are happening, and things are moving fast forward. And uh, I hope I see also in the U.S. that um, the uh, regarding detention type green roofs and stormwater, uh, the stormwater rules and le legislation around that, uh, that is slowly changing in the US and we see, see huge changes and, and permits uh, being, being uh, uh, accepted uh, all, all over the US. So things are changing. I mentioned earlier that green roofs could be seasonal or they could be year round, but mm. as you noted here in Chicago, it's very extreme weather. In the summertime, it could be as high as 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the winter, it often gets below zero. So what kind of considerations do you have to take into uh, when you're planning and designing a green roof in extreme climates like this? Well, um, one thing you got to think about is that often if it's, it's, if it's under zero, like zero Celsius, <laughs> like freezing, freezing point, I should say, it makes, makes it easier and more international. Um, it is basically a drought for the plants. And you got to recognize that, um, yeah, the plants need to survive a, not only the, the extreme climate in Chicago, but they need to uh, survive the extreme green roof climate that is also in an extreme climate in Chicago. So there's like two extremes because up on the roof, there are extreme conditions no matter where you are, but especially so in, in, in already extreme places. So um, one thing you can do is that you can, you can use our modelers and you can put in your location and you can basically uh, real-time model, uh, like with uh, we have 20 year stochastic weather data that feeds in and you can model uh, the systems and see how many drought days and how many extreme condition days um, you will have per year. And you can try to tweak the system so that um, it is basically optimized for your local weather conditions. Fantastic. And I know that's a, it's a challenge to talk about these in the abstract. Uh, when we talk about specific issues, it's a lot mm. easier to give input. Uh, so let's move on to some everybody always wants to know is, you know, who's best. And so give us a lay <laughs> of the land and tell us how green roofs have been assimilated into building design by different countries. So what country do you think is the leader? What countries lag behind? And where does the U.S. stand when it comes to green roofs? Yeah, so well, I from well, if you just look at the percentage green roofs of the total roof area i think uh, germany is uh, the leader um i think there's in in many places up to 10 percent green roofs uh, if you look if i look out here from my flat uh, i see green roofs everywhere i live on the top floor and it's just green roofs green roofs green roofs every single new building has got a green roof um 
And uh, having said that, I think there's a lot of old thinking about green roofs in Germany that is still prevailing. And I hope that this is changing over time, especially when it comes to stormwater. Um, when it comes to uh, innovative thinking, I think Austria is really far, far uh, in front of everybody. They have fantastic systems. They have like really innovative thinking and, and uh, they also have new laws coming into place. So basically everybody has to have a green roof. The US, um, real, uh, real cool innovation. There's fantastic products and things coming out of the US. Unfortunately, there seem to be a little bit slow on the uptake. Um, and I think it has to do with, with the building uh, code regulations and a lot of other things like that. Um, but I think uh, we are coming to a, a turning point. I really hope so uh, for the US as well. How many green, uh, what percentage of green roofs are uh, dec decorative and what uh, percentage do you, if you know, are uh, vegetable or produce producing? Well, I wouldn't say that any green roof is decorative because uh, every single, in my opinion, a green roof should always solve a, a problem. So for example, if you solve the problem of retention that you wanna reduce the, the runoff uh, into the sewers, uh, or if you wanna reduce flooding events, you can have a green roof that basically produces zero vegetables, but have a really, really huge environmental, uh, positive environmental impact. So um, I think green roofs are workhorses. And of course they can be pretty. And if you have like color patterns in the green roof, they can look, uh, they can look amazing, but then they also require maybe irrigation. They might require a lot of maintenance. So they might be very costly to, to, to have. So uh, it really depends if you want to use it as a branding statement, or if you just merely want to use it as a workhorse. Um, we broadcast uh, on the air here in the Chicago market and several mm -hmm. buildings, including Millennium Park, City Hall, Soldier Field, McCormick Place West, and the former old post office building have green roofs. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about countries, which is sometimes difficult. It really comes down to the city. So how does it, uh, Chicago compare to other cities when it comes to green roofs? I'm not really sure, to be honest, uh, because I'm not I'm not really very active in that that part of, of the world. But as far as I know, there is uh, there is a lot of activity in, in Chicago, and I really hope that uh, more will come. And I hope that more people will be inspired to look out and, and maybe build green roofs after hearing this. <laughs> well, if you ever get to Chicago, let me know, because there's some wonderful examples of great green roof projects here. Uh, and probably the first one was on City Hall. Mm -hmm. uh, and their biggest advantage was their, they got about 10 degrees uh, difference in the summer in cooling uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, versus the other half of the building, which is the county building, which doesn't have a green roof. Yeah. So let's get into the economic and environmental benefits of green roofs. Mm -hmm. And why should our listeners care about green roofs? Because, uh, I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to be just plain and blunt, uh, you can actually save a lot of money with the right type of green roof in the right place. Um, there, are, there are so many environmental fantastic reasons to have a green roof. Uh, you reduce the temperature uh, on, outside the building and uh, you reduce the urban heat island effect, which is more of a city-wide thing. You can also capture a lot of pollutants, but that's not going to like put money into your specific pocket. But if you can reduce the temperature on the roof by 10 degrees in summer, that basically means that the uh, air conditioning equipment might have to work a lot less. And it might also, um, yeah, the, basically the energy requirements of the building uh, improves. 
So there you have a, a, um, a one uh, ROI. In, in Holland, for example, they also, because of there's, there's a protection of the waterproofing membrane if you have a green roof, we can lead to that the, the uh, waterproofing membrane lasts for decades longer. And that also means that you might not have to uh, exchange the roof uh, for several decades longer. And that's also saving. But um, the main uh, ROI that I see is the, the one of stormwater. So if you have a detention type green roof that basically um, slows the outflow of, of the storm, um, you can, for example, in New York City, they have these stormwater tanks underneath the buildings. And if you manage the stormwater on the roof with the green roof instead with detention type green roof, they can reduce the tanks underneath the building and build a parking lot there or do something, do something else that generates income basically. And there you have an ROI suddenly um, and makes sense. Well, you made some good points on the uh, uh, economic benefits. What about the environmental benefits? Well, um, the reduction in stormwater runoff has got massive impacts. For example, here in Berlin, uh, when it rains in summer, and this happens frequently, uh, the whole city smells of poo. And I'm not kidding, it is poo. So it basically is these combined sewer overflows uh, that are, um, when it's the sewers, basically the mixed sewers fills up, they need to release that water somewhere and they can't release it into the buildings because then they'll have a, a fountain out, out of our toilets and that would be very nasty. So they basically release the untreated sewers straight into the spree at the river here. It happens also in Washington DC, it happens in, in New York City, it happens all over the US. And it basically leads to both economic and of course then massive ecological disasters around the cities. And also the sewage treatment plants is very costly to particularly clean phosphorus. And if you have a lot of water coming down, um, yeah, the sewage treatment plants has a lot of phosphorus to clean and, and the money that is taken to this is of course the tax money. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's just a, an old system to mix uh, gray water and, and uh, sewage, but there you are, you know, we'll have to live with this old technology. And using green roofs, you can reduce the runoff by, so, by a lot. But putting a green sponge on your roof, it yeah, sucks up all that. Green, <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it is. Soak it up, yep. Oh, well, uh, Anna, any closing thoughts about green roofs or critical based scientific th thinking you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, well, I mean, if, if anybody has any questions around green roofs, I'm always happy to, to, to answer them. And uh, if you're also interested in, in uh, my science communication activities, you can always visit me on, on Dr. Anna's Imaginarium on Facebook as well. <laughs> so, um, I post a lot from NASA. <laughs> I think well, Dr. Anna, our time went so quickly and I enjoyed our discussion. It was great speaking with you and thanks for being on GreenSense. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Anna Zakretian, science communicator, critical thinker, and green roof expert, sharing her thoughts here on GreenSense. GreenSense is an independent radio show. Your financial support helps us cover operating expenses so that we can continue to tell great stories that inspire action like the one we did today. We do not sell advertising, but rely on the generous financial support of patrons like you so we can continue to produce a high quality audio broadcast that promotes sustainable solutions to our most pressing environmental challenges. If you're interested in being a patron, call 312-493-1470 for more information, or visit our website at greensensefarms.com to download the patron form or a podcast of this show. 
I'm Robert Colangelo, and thank you for listening and reminding you to catch the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 AM and 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. Thank you.